This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to This Week in FCPA on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Mike Flanagan, and you're listening to This Week in FCPA on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to This Week in FCPA on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to This Week in FCPA on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 123 for the week ending October 5, 2018. The baseball playoffs are here edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help you improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. So what are some of the stories we take up? Well, the two-time loser striker, FCPA enforcement action, in addition to more commentary and fallout from the Petrobras FCPA enforcement action, Elon Musk, in a peak of sanity, settles his FCPA case. Major League Baseball is under investigation for FCPA violations in Latin America. More information on the ruling from the Serious Fraud Office, uh, excuse me, the ruling against the Serious Fraud Office and the ENRC case and attorney-client privilege. Panasonic Avionics finally gets a monitor. If you're going to money launder and steal from a national sovereign wealth fund, you need to think big. And finally, two women behaving badly. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and along with my colleague, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, Vice President of Affiliated Monitors, I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 123 for the week ending, October 12, 2018, the Playoffs Are Here edition. Jay, the baseball playoffs are here. The Sox are playing the hated evil empire. Yet, we had one of the most interesting ethics, compliance, and FCPA weeks we've had in some time. So, welcome, and where do we start? Let's start with a recidivist. Uh, We've got a couple articles coming to us, one from Dick Casson at the FCPA blog, and then one from our friend Sam Rubenfeld over at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, And the facts are, medical device maker Stryker Corp agreed Friday last week to pay the SEC a $7.8 million penalty to resolve the infamous books and records and internal counting control offenses in India, China, and Kuwait. Uh, Basically, some of the misconduct uh, in India, strikers, dealers regularly issued inflated invoices. Uh, In China, strikers wholly owned subsidiary had at least 21 sub-distributors of Stryker's Sonopet product that weren't verified, approved, or trained. And in Kuwait, Stryker had one primary distributor that sold orthopedic products to the Kuwait Ministry of Health. Uh, Prior to that, in an SEC enforcement in October of 2013, Stryker paid $3.2 million to resolve FCPA violations in Argentina, 
Greece, Mexico, Poland, and Romania. So uh, it's bad enough to get yourself on the list once, but when you're a recidivist uh, in the common nomenclature, that means you're a two-time loser. And, um, you know, this, again, uh, just demonstrates the uh, uh, pressure that when you're a medical device company and you're trying to drive a global growth, that sometimes, or more often than not, you are coming in to contact with government officials, and uh, this company really needs to uh, lock it down and get things straight. So, uh, some really great lessons that you detailed for us in, the, in there, Jay. Lots for compliance practitioners to consider on lessons learned, and uh, I'm going to try and tie in a little bit of striker to uh, some thoughts on Petrobras in, uh, in a few minutes. Um, you know, Jay, our next one, uh, once again, I know you're a recovering screenwriter and I know you have an active imagination, but if I had described this to you, you probably would have said, Tom, it'll never sell. It has to be grounded in reality. And that is, of course, Elon Musk and the uh, SEC lawsuit. Uh, last week, we reported he... Tom, Tom, what time is it? Is it 4.20 already? <laughs> Uh, it was close to 420 uh, when uh, one of the events we're going to talk about occurred. Um, last week at this time, uh, Musk had pulled out literally uh, on the way to sign a settlement agreement with the SEC. SEC sued him. Uh, he uh, either came to his senses or caved in uh, on Saturday and settled, we thought, with the uh, SEC. The settlement barred him from serving on um the uh, Tesla board for three years. Uh, the uh, prior uh, settlement agreement had said two years. Uh, they're going to add two independent directors. So uh, one, his settlement got worse over those 48 hours. But it turns out that uh, uh, he was persuaded by Mark Cuban um, to settle based upon Cuban's own experience in successfully defending himself from an SEC insider uh, lawsuit. Now, uh, as of this morning, today, um, it is not clear that the settlement's going to go through for two reasons. One is the uh, judge has uh, has oversight over the settlement because it's a cease and desist order, and the judge has asked for additional information on the basis of the settlement. So we have that. But even more amazing is the following. Elon Musk sent out a tweet yesterday at nearly 420. Uh, but actually 3.16 p.m., which said, and I quote, just want to that the Short Seller Enrichment Commission is doing incredible work. And the name change is so on point. So we now have Musk taunting the Securities and Exchange Commission for his settlement. Um, one of the things that the commentary we quoted on, both James Stewart writing in the New York Times and Tom Zanke writing in Law C360, it was clear that um, the board at Tesla needed to get a handle on and around Elon Musk's personal Twitter musings and that he had to stop doing uh, releasing inside information that got him in trouble the first time. Uh, with the SEC, with uh, funding secured. So uh, clearly that part of the settlement has not worked yet. Uh, both Stewart and Zanke talked about uh, the need for better board oversight, and that was simply reinforced by this 
tweet uh, yesterday. Uh, now it was reported um, last night and this morning. And then the the new information about the judge questioning the settlement, uh, who knows where that's going to go. Unlike FCPA cases, when a deferred prosecution agreement is presented to a judge, he has to sign it. In a cease and desist order, uh, there's some discretion with the court uh, on accepting that. Uh, so um, uh, an SEC cease and desist order. So, uh, you know, Elon really uh, needs to get off Twitter. Uh, this is just unbelievable that he would taunt the SEC um, in this manner. So a couple things uh, by the numbers and Check me if I'm wrong on this, Tom, but one might not want to settle with the generous offer of the SEC because they could think that they might get better terms if they hold out. But if I'm reading the numbers correctly, the SEC originally said that he would be barred from being the uh, chief executive for two years. He ended up settling with three years, and the initial fine was supposed to be $10 million, but then the SEC doubled it by him waiting 48 hours and then an additional $20 million for uh, um, Tesla. So did I get those numbers right? Uh, you got those numbers right. And uh, let me just throw in the, the judge has uh, instructed both Tesla and the SEC to produce a joint letter of no longer than 10 pages um, to provide evidence the proposed judgment is fair and reasonable and that it's in the public interest. So it's going to be uh, interesting to see with uh, what jointly the parties come up with, particularly with uh, Musk's Twitter musings. Well, maybe it's possible that since he has the itchy Twitter finger that he might be contemplating a run for president in 2020. Well, uh, he's actually not qualified because he's not an American, not born in America. So no, but we, even we, we kind of waive the small things. Most <laughs> presidential candidates usually reveal their tax returns. So, you know, if well, Schwarzenegger could be governor in California, why don't, why don't we let something slide for Mr. Musk? Well, you know, Ted Cruz, so there is precedent. So. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think we spoke about this last week. Um, former Chile mining executive settles FCPA offenses. And uh, Patricio Contes, the CEO of SQM, because it's easier to say, directed and authorized nearly $15 million in payments through a discretionary account to Chilean politicians, political candidates, and people and entities associated. Uh, they settled charge, he settled charges with the SEC and uh, Charles Kane, chief of the SEC, SEC's Foreign Corrupt Practices Act unit, said that uh, this is something we also agree with. Corporate culture starts at the top, and when misconduct is directed by the highest level of management, it's critical that they're held accountable for their conduct. Without admitting or denying the SEC's allegations, Mr. Contessa agreed to pay $125,000, and SQM trades its Series B American depository shares on the New York Stock Exchange, so that's why uh, they fall under our jurisdiction. The Santiago Chile-based company last January in 2007 agreed to pay $30.5 million to resolve foreign bribery allegations from the SEC and the Justice Department jointly. So this is something that's uh, 
been on the horizon for the last couple of years or so. And um, again, we're looking at something that is purely in the uh, energy and the extractive industries uh, crosshairs. So, Jay, um, myself and several other commentators wrote uh, a deep, deep dive analysis into the Petrobras settlement uh, this past week or the Petrobras enforcement action. I did a three-part series on it. Mike Volkoff took a look at it. Jonathan Marks took a look at it. And um, uh, we all uh, had some questions around. Uh, Jonathan had a great question, um, which he entitled, In the Realm of the Obvious, uh, Why Was There No Monitor? Uh, uh, the question I had was, uh, wh- how did this defendant or this company sustain a non-prosecution agreement uh, in, in, in spite of uh, clearly the most un, um, the most worldwide corruption schemes ever, uh, at least to date? And uh, actually, uh, I recorded a podcast with Stephen Martin that's going to go up Monday where we're going to explain it or at least Stephen's going to give his thoughts on it. So um, lots to talk about from uh, Petrobras, some great commentary and some great lessons. And I would point to uh, some of the bribery schemes that were used were uh, clearly, truly innovative. So I hope people will uh, take a look at my uh, uh, blog post. I'm releasing a white paper through Corporate Compliance Insights on it, which will give you some ideas on the bribery schemes. You can check it out and uh, see if any of that's going on in your Company, but there was one article that uh, was tangentially related to uh, Petrobras that I wanted to bring up, Jay, and that was an article in uh, Corporate Compliance Insights by Andy Webb Vidal about ten lessons from Operation Car Wash. And for those of our listeners who may not remember, the Petrobras scandal started with Operation Car Wash, and Andy took a look at really where that uh, investigation has gone, the uh, various. Uh, splinterings and different investigations leading to Odebrecht, leading to JBF. And he came up with uh, 10 reasons why, um, or five reasons why he believes uh, Operation Car Wash marks uh, the turning point in Latin America. And these were that while the coverage, um, the media coverage of this would seem to indicate corruption was completely out of control, he found it to actually be uh, show that anti-bribery institutions were functioning even if imperfectly, but they weren't failing. That the uh, co- Operation Car Wash means the impunity for white-collar crime can no longer be taken for granted. Prosecutors are becoming much uh, stronger and much more willing to collaborate with counterparts in other countries. Clearly, the Petrobras settlement speaks to that. The judicial systems in Latin America are becoming more effective and that uh, probably near and dear to our hearts, Operation Car Wash is encouraging more anti, excuse me, more robust anti-corruption litigation (coughs) legislation and more robust compliance programs going forward. So um, I thought uh, his uh, piece was quite interesting uh, and insightful. Uh, I totally agree with you, Tom. And, um, you know, I I think with so much of this – Corruption happening in Brazil. To um, refer back to your part one blog on Petrobras, and you have a list of um, the top 10 international anti-corruption enforcement penalties. And if you look at the top three, it's JBF, which is Brazil, Oldebrecht, uh, Brascam, which is Brazil, Petrobras. And then if you go down to um, 
Rolls Royce, there's also a Brazilian component. So I think if you take those um, those matters and you tie them together with Andy Webb Vidal's uh, piece, you know the the five things that he offers are that you know there's five reasons why the glass is half full, but then there's also five reasons why the glass is half empty. And I think my overarching perspective is is that. Um, these investigations have really uh, set the tone within within Brazil. There is much more cooperation globally, and I would uh, definitely like to take the glasses half full uh, perspective on that one. Next one is a very interesting article that I, uh, I guess since I don't read Sports Illustrated, I missed this one. But uh, this comes to us from Cheryl Ring, and it's entitled, A Federal Grand Jury is Investigating Major League Baseball. And it starts off while people like you and I are uh, focusing on the playoffs that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, Major League Baseball is currently the subject of a federal grand jury investigation targeting the league's business practices in Latin America. And this is um, based on a report by Jeff Passan on the investigation. And basically, the federal, a federal grand jury uh, is looking into whether or not um, there was anything improper about uh, dealings with Cuban star Hector Oliveira. He was originally signed by the Los Angeles Dodgers and traded, uh, and traded over to the Braves. I think what's very interesting about this and why this hits our radar is that a couple of DOJ lawyers who specialize in the FCPA are working with this grand jury. So, um, you know, with everything that we saw with FIFA and with Latin American players being such a large part of the uh, game now, it's just a matter of time for something like this to happen. And um, the timing's great because it really just uh, puts a little bit of a shadow on the playoffs. What are your thoughts on it, Tom? So uh, I have to say, Jay, that I am shocked, just shocked to find out that there may have been bribery and corruption in Latin America and the Caribbean regarding uh, poor Latin American families and their sons playing baseball. I'm just absolutely shocked that there possibly could be corruption around that. And uh, But once I got past being shocked and realized that actually I was standing in a casino that uh, there was gambling going on. Um, uh, perhaps Carrier winnings, that, uh, Mr. Fox. <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, can I have a little bit uh, larger bills? That's too big a pile for me. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's just a complete imbalanced system. You have a multi-billion-dollar business uh, with uh, needing product uh, or, or raw material, I suppose, which is the baseball players to turn out a product, which is the baseball game. And you have uh, raw material that can be had very, very cheaply. And it's very, very good raw material. And uh, it's not surprising that uh, corners were cut. The um, Perhaps uh, uh, you might not think <clears throat> that the FCPA would be implicated because you might not think there would be any government um, involvement. But in Cuba, for instance, everything is owned by the government, Jay. There's no private property. So all those baseball teams, those are all foreign governments. Um, oops. Um, in other Latin American countries, think of all just the um, 
standard issues that any U.S. multinational would have in terms of visas, travel, licenses to do business, uh, permits, all of those things uh, that corners may have been cut. So it doesn't uh, surprise me at all. And I guess what surprises me is that uh, all major league sports franchises and indeed college sports franchises have not awoken to the fact that they may be doing things that have FCPA implications, and they really gave zero thought to that. Uh, I think that uh, the NBA uh, has given a lot of thought to that because they have a very robust international presence, but you would certainly think with the international presence of uh, Major League Baseball, they would, and hopefully the NFL, it's the last thing our uh, <clears throat> beloved commissioner needs is an FCPA issue with everything else he's got going on. But, uh, you know, pretty shocked that there'd be gambling going on in a casino. Yeah. So, Tom, why don't you tell us about the recent uh, SFO ruling about ENRC and uh, what, the, um, what that portends for the attorney-client privilege? So uh, we've talked about this case before, Jay, because this was a uh, decision that went against the SFO. They were trying to have the um, attorney-client privilege overturned in a, a corporate internal investigation. And the uh, court, I think, certainly under U.S. law and apparently under U.K. law, properly held that uh, once uh, the privilege is kicked in or invoked, rather, uh, by general counsel, uh, then uh, the, the investigation conducted under that privilege is indeed privileged. Um, the SFO has not appealed that, so I think that they probably agreed with that as well. Um, and most of the commentary I've read from UK lawyers believes that the court came out with uh, correct advice. So uh, what's interesting, though, is that uh, ENRC, the, the defendant in this case, has become very aggressive, and they want an a investigation of uh, the serious fraud office or even uh, bringing this challenge. Uh, so that, that's a pretty aggressive approach. But we had a really interesting blog post by uh, Andrew Reeves uh, entitled Five Lessons About Privilege and Internal Investigation. Andrews is a senior associate at Norton Rose Fulbright in their London office, and he had five key takeaways for us. Uh, and of course, we've cited to the article that appears in the FCPA blog. Number one, companies faced with allegations of wrong doing can conduct investigations with greater confidence that the documents relating to the investigation will be protected by uh, privilege under uh, English law. The decision does to the decision does not mean there's a blanket privilege for internal investigations. The litigation privilege will uh, still have to show the dominant purpose of the communication was related to an adversarial process. That adversary can be the SFO. Three, document the purpose and scope of your internal in uh, investigation and justification for documents covered by the privilege. Interestingly, in number four, it narrows the definition of client for the purposes of legal advice so that um, anyone who is not a client of the lawyer taking the interview, uh, notes prepared in uh, that interview, the privilege will not apply. And it's uh, number five is a reminder for all lawyers, both in the United States and the United Kingdom, that lawyers' working papers will be only be covered by the privilege to the extent um, uh, that they uh, have uh, legal advice. So that means if you record facts, uh, that's not going to be privileged. So um, I think uh, always good to uh, recall these. This was certainly the result that uh, I would have hoped for uh, as a U.S. lawyer and uh, something that every company uh, 
their legal department needs to circulate this and also their compliance department. So um, in your neck of the woods, uh, Panasonic Avionics got a monitor. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, this is uh, very interesting. Uh, Paul Hastings' partner, Kwame Manley, has been appointed by the DOJ as the Independence Compliance Monitor, monitor not monster, uh, for Panasonic Avionics as part of its April $280 million foreign bribery settlement, which was concurrent with the DOJ and the SEC. Uh, Manley will remain the monitor for the Japanese Electronics California-based subsidiary Panasonic Avionics Corporation for two years. So uh, when you're flying on all your international flights and you have those very cool interfaces that you can choose movies or music or entertainment, that's the kind of thing that Panasonic Avionics does. And uh, this past April, the company admitted that certain employees, including senior executives, schemed to retain consultants for improper purposes and conceal payments to third parties. Uh, the company was represented by Wilmer Hale. Uh, what's very interesting is here, uh, they basically said that one of the things the company needed to keep in mind was that they wanted to hire a diverse monitor. Uh, and there's been uh, – this article comes to us from GIR, Global Investigations Review, and through Freedom of Information Act, uh, they were able to get some stats going on the uh, complexion, uh, purposely said, of monitors. And since 2004, while over 40 white men have been awarded FCPA monitorships, only three women and three non-white lawyers, who are all men, have been picked. And so with the uh, choice of Manley, an African-American, he is now the fourth non-white person to be chosen for the FCPA monitorship since 2014. So, uh, you know, it's um, – it's not surprising that they have the monitor there, but I think it's uh, it sh shows that the uh, DOJ is trying to uh, shake things up, and I, I applaud his appointment. Any thoughts on your front, Todd? Uh, Tom? Nope. Uh, I think you about summed it up. All right. Why don't you tell us about the $500 million in central bank heist and how it was foiled? So this is a really interesting um, – article, very well reported by the Wall Street Journal, three reporters. And this involves the looting of the Sovereign Wealth Fund and National Bank of Angola by the uh, former prime minister and his family. His son tried to arrange a $500 million transfer or did arrange a $500 million transfer out uh, of the bank to uh, Credit Suisse, I believe. And then he tried uh, several times to uh, take tranches out from that $500 million. And each time, uh, the bank uh, declined to make the transfer. So uh, it's really a great lesson in both uh, how sovereign wealth funds and national banks in uh, high-risk countries and emerging markets are looted by uh, the governing class and their families, and also how uh, when the, sy the system can work and the system does um, work uh, in corresponding banks literally throughout the world around uh, anti-money laundering and suspicious transactions uh, to stop this sort of thing. Now, now the uh, money has gotten back to Angola 
So that's uh, one good thing. And uh, we're going to wait to see the fallout from the people who've been arrested. They all claim it was a legitimate transaction. And, you know, the begs the question, if you have a legitimate transaction under a corrupt government, is that transaction still legitimate or clothed with corruption? So uh, that really leads us to uh, kind of our last big story. And we have some women who have behaved very badly. You want to tell us about this? And it's not your girls. Not my girls, but the day's early and something could happen. So the <laughs> first uh, woman behaving badly is Razma Mansour, the Malaysian anti, uh, excuse me, Razma Mansour, the Malaysian anti-corruption agency arrested ex-prime minister Najib Razak's wife Wednesday for laundering money looted from your favorite uh, sovereign wealth fund, 1MDB. Uh, Rosma Mansur, 66, will face several charges for her role in the scandal. During raids on houses and condos owned by Najib and his wife in July, Malaysian police seized $273 million worth of jewelry, handbags, and other valuables. Now, Mrs. Fox may be uh, interested in some of the uh, fashion items that were seized here uh, during the raid. Yes, the, the Poli- PM's Poli- wife was not a coach shopper, so Michelle would have zero interest. Okay. Mrs. Police Compliance seized, Angelus. Police seized cash in 26 currencies with a total value of $28.6 million. They got 457 handbags, but as you said, they're Hermes and not coach, so no interest there at $12 million. And also seized were 423 watches valued at $19 million, along with 230 or sunglasses worth 93K. So that's uh, what's happening at 1MDB. And then we've got another woman behaving badly, and this is tied into some of the telecom scandals over the past couple of years. Uh, the UK SFO, Serious Fraud Office, said Wednesday is trying to recover assets bought with the money connected to corrupt deals in Uzbekistan. The claim concerns a number of assets, including three U.K. properties, which the SFO alleges were obtained using the proceeds of corrupt deals. Um, Gwinara Karamavov, 45, the eldest daughter of the late Uzbek president, allegedly took $300 million in bribes from Sweden's Tilia Company, AB, and Amsterdam Company, Vimplecom, which is now known as Beyond. Uh, in September of last year, Tilia agreed to pay $965 million to resolve FCPA uh, offenses for bribery in Uzbekistan. And in February 2016, uh, Vimplecom reached a $795 million resolution with U.S. and Dutch attorneys. So uh, two people uh, dealing with the ill-gotten gains of bribery. This brings us to uh, the weekend playoffs, Tom, and uh, tell, tell us what your prospects are for the Houston Astros in the uh, upcoming uh, ALDS. So l- let's first talk about the 106-game winning league-leading highest-rated odds to win the World Series Boston Red Sox. And some of their gutless, gutless wonder fans, uh, specifically those on this podcast, uh, because uh, your lack of faith in your own team uh, 
having had, did I mention they had 106 wins and they were the league leaders and they have home home field advantage throughout the playoffs and they're five to one odds to win the World Series. But, uh, you know, Jay, it just boggles my mind that after winning three World Series in the last 15 years, you still are living in 1975 and 1986, um, perhaps uh, with a twinge of Bucky F. Dent thrown in. I don't know what. But your lack of faith in your team is just uh, perplexing to someone like me who went only 55 years uh, before the Houston Astros won. So um, I'm I'm really excited about these playoffs. I'm not quite sure how you feel, uh, given your gutless wonder status. But uh, frankly, Yankees, Red Sox, playoffs, it don't get no better than that. And it's October, and uh, I don't know if, you know, uh, Pedro Martinez will his ghost will appear, or there'll be other ghosts. But uh, I'm going to be tuned in to those games after I watch the Astros cruise through the Indians. Well, Tom, I appreciate you laying down the gauntlet, and uh, I will return to Jay Rosen of past of your, and I will be the homer that you know deep inside I am. So I will take Mr. Jackson and put him up against you. And are we putting up that we're going to meet in the ALCS or putting up for the World Series? What is the exact um, picture we're talking about? Uh, well, I'm betting we win, so you can take that any way you want. All right. Well, let's uh, let's see what happens. Uh I'm, I'm, I'm behind the Bo Sox, and uh, earlier in the, in the pre-call prep, you said something about 1918, which used to be the taunt for me and my chowder heads, and now it's 2018, so maybe there's something there that's going to happen. Uh, do we want to take any uh, quick shots to run down the, play, the playoff teams, AL and NL? Where, where do you think we're going to uh, end up? Well, the Dodgers looked pretty strong last night. So, uh, uh, and of course, but it doesn't matter because the Astros are going to win. So there. Okay. And uh, who also looked very good last night were the uh, New England Patriots. Uh, I think for the first time since November of 2016, uh, Michigan's own Tom Brady had both Gronk and Julian Edelman out on the field at the same time. So that was uh, pretty exciting to watch the Pats. Uh, you know, there was still some points scored in garbage time, but uh, right now we're three and two, and it's looking a lot better than uh, we were when we were one and two. So uh, I Amen think, uh, yeah. What, I don't anything? know. Um, I don't know if uh, Baltimore will be the ultimate test, but uh, as you correctly noted, three and two looks a whole lot better than one and two, and they're right in the middle of the division. And that's what they need to win to get into the playoffs. So uh, I'm expecting to see your Patriots and my fellow Wolverine, Tom Brady, playing in January again. Great. Uh, Tom, we're into October. The uh, conference season is starting. And you and my colleague, Eric Feldman, will be in Denver next week. What's going down there? So we are going to uh, Converge 18, be in Denver on October 9th through 11th. Still a few slots open, and I've still got a 50% discount available. If anybody uh, wants to register at the last minute, uh, I was somewhat chagrined yesterday to find out it's supposed to snow there So uh, on uh, Monday and Tuesday. So uh, if you're coming from a place like Houston, be sure and bring a coat or two. 
So uh, it should be a great event. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing Eric talk about perverse incentives. Mike Volkoff and I are going to talk about key performance indicators in your compliance program. Great. Um, so I think barring anything else, uh, we just, uh, before we got on the air, the uh, Senate just voted to uh, have a cloture vote, and it was by the slimmest of margins, uh, 51 yay and uh, 49 nay. So uh, that means they will continue on to debate, and there should be um, a decision made sometime tomorrow. So that's uh, a little bit sobering from my point of view, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 123 for the week ending October 12th, 2018, the playoffs of hair edition. So for Tom Fox uh, and myself, Jay Rosen, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great weekend and enjoy the baseball and football. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I review some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.